right, well, let's take our Bibles together and uh, open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, our text for this morning is verses 1 through 8. In the Church Bible, page 3. Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 8. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is God's word. Thank him for it. Uh, I need to pray, and uh, we all need to pray. Ask for the Lord's help this time. Would Would you join me? Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Your word is our daily bread. We live by it. Not by the bread that we eat, but we live by what you say. And so, Lord, we need to hear from you now. We need your voice to transcend the voice of a mere man and plant in our heart the living and active word of God. So please, by your Spirit, accomplish this work. And I pray that the Lord Jesus himself will be glorified as we do this. And ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the story of Cain and Abel, familiar probably to most of us, it's an archetypal story. And it's not uh, not about sibling rivalry as some might presume, but rather really about the the path that you take, one path leading to destruction and the other joy. It's the contrast between rest on one hand and toil on the other. It's a contrast between acceptance and rejection. Now, the the grand narrative of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is that there are really two ways to go. The way of enjoying the good gifts that God has given in himself. And the alternative, depravity and desolation. So from Adam and Eve through Cain and his descendants, we really see the consequence of those choices. Yet in spite of choosing badly, God proves himself gracious in providing a way out for his people. Now, in the text that we read, the Lord asks Cain this rhetorical question. 
if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well. So I think the question that comes to each of us, or should, I hope, would be, do you want to be accepted by the Lord? If you do, you must do well. Now, you might have an idea of what doing well looks like. But what we're going to learn today as we unpack this, this story is that it is more about what God does than what we do. Doing well is more about what God does than what we can do. And while we each have chosen to some degree depravity and desolation, God has provided a way back for us, a way for us to be accepted, the way to do well and to be accepted. I've chosen three words to summarize this from the text. So the way to do well and be accepted, these three words. This really will serve as my outline this morning. Believe, beware, and rest. So believe, beware, and rest. First, believe. What does it mean to believe? Now, I've noticed uh, recently, and you may have as well, that the government officials are seeking to stoke our faith. Uh, you may wonder about that statement, but faith in what? We keep hearing, believe, the science. Believe the science, as if science is some kind of settled body of information and not a process of inquiry. And I get it. I get it. What they're trying to do is say, believe me that this policy is the right thing. This is best for you. And, and I think the public responds in affirming that or not based on something going on in themselves, whether or not they think they know better. Governments provide recommendations or laws. When they provide laws, we simply have to obey. When they provide recommendations, people will decide whether they think in themselves they know better. I happen to be, well, I may be one of those people that sometimes think I know better, but we'll set that aside. But it's really about, so when you hear an authoritative, do this, this is for your good, when it falls on our ears, we, hmm, do I trust them? Do I believe in them? You can believe the words, you can believe that, that you're hearing the words, but actually responding in the way that they expect you to respond is really the test of whether or not you believe them. And of course, there's no comparing God to government officials. Of course not. God is perfectly faithful, unlike the government. He has the power to know and do anything. Now, if we look at our text here, the question is this. I think this one stands out to me. Did Cain believe God? Did he believe God? Now, he interacted with God, right? He, he brought an offering to the Lord, but it wasn't accepted like Abel's, was it? So why is that? Something, something in, either in Cain's offering or the way that he brought it proved, proved that he thought he knew better than God. Yes, he interacted with God, but he didn't truly trust him. Now, before we look at, at, uh, at Cain and Abel and, and unpack some of the differences in, uh, between them, I want us to look just closely at verse 1 and give it some attention to Eve. This is how we're introduced to the, these two brothers. Uh, in the previous chapter, however, as we look a little, uh, back a little bit, we saw how the rebellion of both Adam and Eve brought this curse on creation. They thought they knew better. 
They thought they knew better than the Lord. And while the Lord forbade them to take of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they took it. They thought, well, I know what the Lord said, but you know, we think better. And as a result, the Lord humbled them. And he, by, by putting the curse on creation, he reminded them that they truly did depend on God because God indeed does know better. He does. Now, the tragedy, of course, in this is once their eyes were opened with that knowledge of good and evil, that it opened their, their minds to, to more and more options, things that they would have never considered before, more and more options to act independently of the Lord. And, and so an example of this sense of independence, it's revealed in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, this is something I didn't see until I studied it more deeply. I'm going to Read it again with me. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That's euphemism. Uh, we get what it means. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, now you might be asking, what's, what's wrong with this? Well, Hebrew scholars and people much smarter than me, they detect more than a hint of pride in this declaration. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, Adam gave Eve her name, the meaning of which is the mother of all living. Now, now, armed with that vaunted title, perhaps Eve now sees a unique and perhaps exalted role for herself. So, we get back to verse 1, saying, she says, I have gotten a man. I have gotten a man. It's like she's claiming some generative power. God created Adam. She has now gotten a man. Now, now, the phrase doesn't stand out as kind of prideful until you compare it. We'll deal with this in weeks ahead to verse 25. I'll just take you there for a moment. If you look at the birth of Seth, she much more humbly declares there, God has appointed for me another offspring. It's different, different tone. I have gotten a man versus God has appointed. So what's this attitude that Eve is expressing? It's autonomy. I got this. I can do this. The knowledge of good and evil that she had acquired when she ate of that tree it put before her the idea that maybe, maybe she didn't really need the Lord. Maybe, maybe she didn't need to trust the word of the Lord. Maybe her own way was as good, maybe even better. And this is the same mindset, I think, that has infected Cain. Now to Cain and Abel. Let's look at what each one did. Verse 3, we're told, verse 2, what, what each of them did. Abel kept sheep and Cain worked the ground. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That's what they did. So each are bringing an offering to the Lord. There's no explanation as to why. It's just simply stated. We don't have the background of what was expected. We don't, we don't know what the Lord may have taught them. We don't know any of that. They simply brought an offering. And in that circumstance, the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, but not Cain's. So what's the difference? Of course, we're left to ask the question, what is the difference? What might be happening that's not explicitly stated? 
Now, each one brought an offering that was kind of in keeping with their differing roles, right? Cain, he's a worker of the soil. Abel, a keeper of sheep. So it's obvious. You give from what you've got, right? Now, as you think about this, there are possible reasons for, for the Lord favoring Abel. Possible reasons as you continue to read through the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Perhaps it's because Abel brought a blood sacrifice. That is to say, an atonement sacrifice, representing in him the acknowledgement of his own sin and the need for mercy. He's saying something has to die because I'm a sinner. Cain's, by contrast, perhaps represented his success as a farmer. I've farmed. Lord, look what I have done. And by the way, here's some for you. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm framing it that way. I get that. Again, this is speculative, but, but perhaps it's just the difference between humility and pride. But really, bottom line is we're not really told that the, af that the offering on Abel's part was a sacrifice per se. So that's speculation there. And it's not beyond the bounds of reason here, as I already said, to consider that both Cain and Abel had already received instruction from the Lord as to what kind of offering was acceptable and for what occasion. But the bottom line here, I think that the only way that we can know that God favored, why God favored Abel's offering over Cain's was that God saw something in their respective hearts that was either commendable or not irrespective of the substance of what they brought. So set aside the stuff. Set aside that. Something in the heart. And, and the writer of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The writer of Hebrews explains it to us. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you don't know what something means and the New Testament gives light to it, that's the meaning. Abel was commended as righteous, not because of the substance of his offering, but we're told because of faith, because of faith. And so we can conclude that something in the way that Cain brought his offering lacked genuine trust. It lacked faith. It lacked belief. So even though he interacted with God, he didn't truly trust him. And in his interaction with God, somehow he thought he knew better. He thought he knew better. And so the Lord speaks to him, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? You see, the foundation of what it means to be accepted by God is not what we do for him, but in trusting what he's done for us. So let me paraphrase it my way. The Lord's saying, if you trust me, Cain, will you not be accepted? Now, I can say this on the authority of Scripture because later when we get to Genesis chapter 15, we're going to see how the Lord told Abraham that his own offspring would be a numerous people, uncountable like, like the stars in the sky. So here's my take on that. The Lord says to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I'm going to do through you. And what was Abraham's response? And 
then how did the Lord respond to Abraham? Genesis 15, verse 6. He, that is Abraham, and he believed the Lord. And what happened? And he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. Abraham was counted righteous before the Lord because he believed. And what does it mean to believe the Lord? It's not merely interacting with the Lord. It's not merely saying a prayer to the Lord. It's not merely acknowledging that he exists, but believing in the Lord means trusting everything that he has revealed about himself. Getting what the scripture says about his own character and his own nature, that God is, is just, that God is merciful, that he is all-wise, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, that he is ever-present. And it's trusting in his word, all that he has said. And we have everything of his word that we need in the scriptures. Everything. It's trusting all of that. And it trusts what God says about us too. That we were born in sin after the likeness of Adam, after he sinned. That we are powerless to do any good apart from God. That life with God, our life with God, cannot be attained by anything that we do. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe? To be accepted, you must believe. Do you believe? Are you truly trusting God? Now maybe where you're sitting this morning, you feel like you you need or, or perhaps want to do something for God, that you want to bring a sacrifice. Well, let me tell you, this is what God wants you to give to him. Listen, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants from you. He knows you're broken. He knows you have failed. And when we come to God, we must agree with him. Yes, we have failed. And we must come to him with the sacrifice of a broken heart. Now, the only reason, the only acceptable sacrifice from us to God, the reason that a humble heart is all that he'll receive a repentant heart is because the only sacrifice that could, in fact, atone for our sin was already accomplished when Jesus went to the cross. So now, now, what do we do in light of that? We believe him. Trust that God's son, the holy, the eternal one, trust that he, he bore your sin in his body and ultimately paid that full price for everything that you and I have ever done or ever will do. Trust him. Believe him. If you are to do well and be accepted by God, you must believe. Second, we need to beware. Beware. And we all take for granted uh, road signs. It's an obvious... Uh, I was looking up something. Uh, I think this is in England, but there are 20... Is it for every 20 drivers, there is one road sign? I mean, think about that. The number of road signs, signs that tell you to do something. 
I don't know if the stat is right, but we, we take them for granted. They're everywhere. And they're there on the road to, to alter our driving so that we don't endanger ourselves or, or others, right? So you see the sign on the, the pixel board overhead, click it or ticket. They want us to put our seatbelts on. Slippery when wet. Bridge may be icy. You've seen these. We're told to slow down for an upcoming curve in the road or, or to stop at an intersection. These are very helpful signs. I'm grateful for stop signs, right? They're... they're these signs are telling us that there is a potential danger. We need to beware. And a wise person, a wise driver, will heed the sign and take the warning seriously. Standard stuff. Got to learn that when you're learning to drive. Now, there's a danger for us. There's a danger for people not, of not being accepted by God. If we want to do right and be accepted, we must beware. But beware of what? What's the, the, the danger ahead sign for us from this text? Now, as we look at this, we see that Cain's response to the Lord, the Lord's disapproval of his offering, what, it, what happened was it, it exposed this, this danger lurking in his heart. And it was revealed on his face. The Lord says, well, verses 5 and 6, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, you know what the falling face looks like, right? I mean, parents, you see it in their children. I see it in my grandson. You tell him, tell Avery something, and his lip goes. I don't know where kids learn to put their lip out like that. It just extends so far. His face falls. But Cain was angry, so maybe he had a scowl on his face. I don't know. But what happened is that the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Now, Cain's not trying to hide anything here. He didn't try to hide what he was feeling. He was angry at the Lord. He was angry at the situation. At this point, it seems to me like he's decided in his heart that God is not being just. You are not being fair. What's wrong with my offering? Cain had the expectation that the Lord owed him approval. The Lord didn't act the way that Cain expected. Cain thought he knew better. So he's showing his rebellion here, isn't he? Now, at that moment, you know, each of us can look at the situation as the story unfolds and think, okay, Cain, here's what you need to do. If we didn't know where the story was going, right? Okay, just, just stop. <laughs> just repent of your sin right now. Just humble yourself. You've got the warning. Well, here's where the Lord shows his grace to Cain. He gives him a way out. He warns him of the danger. Verse 7. We've already talked about this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Think about this, Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? You see, he says it to him, which means the possibility exists, right? Cain is not passed to the point of no return. His sinful attitude here in this setting does not have to lead to more destruction. And isn't this a theme through the scripture? God calls back the sinner he forgives the adulterous wife. Hosea takes Gomer back. He calls his wandering people back to himself. Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. Those days are over. You don't have to sell your body to the night. That's a theme in Scripture. You don't have to go down that road. And the Lord presents Cain with this destructive alternative if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Now, it's notable, I think, that the word sin, first time it shows up in the Scripture, and the word is essentially missing the mark, just going the wrong way. That's where you're supposed to go. You go there, sin. And he says about sin, it's almost personified. Its desire is for you. For you in the sense it wants to own you. Now, some translations, and I think even the footnote indicates it's contrary to you. Contrary. It's like Eve's, after the curse on creation, Eve's desire will be for her husband, but meaning in the sense that she wants to own him, she wants to control him. Same thing with sin. So sin, here is sin, this, this personified thing, crouching at the door like this ravenous animal. It's hiding and it's waiting for an opportune time to pounce and devour. The Lord is telling Cain, watch out, beware. Don't be owned or controlled by sin. It's a terrifying and destructive thing. So I think the application for us is clear, is it not? We must likewise beware of sin. It's been introduced into the minds of Adam and Eve after they took of the fruit. Eve acts in a kind of a self-aggrandizing way. I got a man. Look what I've done. I don't need the Lord. I've got my own way. Cain, I'll bring uh, any offering I want and however I want. The Lord says, no, no, this is not, this is, this is danger. So the application is clear, is it not? We have to beware of sin. And we have to beware of our own weakness. We are born in the line of Adam and Cain. We are sin corrupted. And having been exposed to that, it's a weakness. It wars against us. And as believers, it it, it wars against the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And ultimately, sin is enslaving. The Apostle Paul writes in in, uh, Romans 7, So I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. It's just sitting there. He's got the mind, right? I I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Be aware of your own weakness. And we also have to be aware of, of where temptations to sin come from. Maybe you've heard it summarized this way. Temptations from the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Where does that come from? The Apostle Paul reminds the Ephesians how they used to live, the ways that they were captured and owned by sin. He says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is that that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is the devil, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. There's the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The world, the flesh, the devil, those temptations, beware. It's all around. And I think we can all think of times in our lives when when sin has pounced on us and we've allowed it to take control. Well, it happens in, in great and small ways. Think of that time, that careless word. It became an all-out argument because you didn't own your sin. Oh, the times I've done that. Maybe there's a season in your life, an extended rebellion. You, you started by making excuses. Then at some point, you just simply decided to embrace it. Now, rather than turn away from it, when God confronted 
Cain. He just simply decided to cherish his sin. And things went from bad to worse. His, his rage against God for pointing out the very danger turned into this jealousy against his brother, and he rose up and killed him. Now, Cain, we have to look at him. He's this archetype for all who would blaspheme God, all who are ultimately destroyed by their own passions because they, they behave like animals driven by instinct rather than reason. Jude writes, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. And he cites a gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. That's a, a reference to, to numbers. Balaam took money to curse the Israelites, took money so that they could, so that they could Israelites could be cursed. And ultimately, being unsuccessful in that, he, he found a way to lead the Israelites astray through sexually immoral practices. That's Numbers 24 and 31. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, how are we to regard sin? Now, Cain ignored the warning, but we should not. See, the insidious nature of sin is that it, it lures us. It lies to us. It tells us it's not a big deal. And before long, if we give into it, we, we find ourselves accommodating it, even cherishing it like a, like a familiar member of the family. Sin, I was thinking of a way to illustrate that. Sin is like Stephen King's Jack Torrance hacking through the door with a possessed look in his eyes. Sinister tone in his voice saying, here's Johnny. That's what sin is like. And I want you to have the horrifying picture. It's like, it's like that stray dog. Oh, oh, it looks so cute. But you bring it home and it's rabid and it attacks you. That's sin. We, we don't see its danger at first. So we must beware of it. Keep an eye out for it. It's destructive. It's terrifying. Don't even give it the smallest foothold. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let's not be devoured. If you want to be accepted by God, beware of sin. And when confronted like Cain was, repent. We're going to sin. I'm not saying give yourself over to it, but we're going to do things. We're going to be careless. Repent. Don't run headlong. If sin owns you right now, listen, it doesn't have to. There's a way back. And that's the final word, which is rest. Rest. Week before last, uh, Kathy and I had the opportunity to visit with uh, her brother and, and his wife in Florida. It's beautiful. Weather was uh, low 80s all week. We walked on the beach. We ate in some really nice restaurants. We swam in their pool. I read a book. It was so, so very restful. But it was restful. Why? Because we planned. We made some decisions in advance. I let the other elders know I would be away. I, I booked the flights. We, we packed some things in a suitcase. We chose to take the vacation. We chose to find Arrest. Now, looking at our text, having the darkness of his heart exposed by the Lord, what option does Cain now have? Will he, will he do right and be accepted, or will he let sin own him? Let me state it another way. Will he choose to rest in the Lord or choose to toil because of sin? Now, we know the story. I read verse 8. 
in his anger against the Lord. It spills over into jealousy against his brother, and he kills him. Sin takes over. And we're going to see in a few weeks how, how that just leads to more toil. It doesn't get easier. He didn't eliminate his problem. He just made more toil for himself. And so because Cain is uh, presented with this option, we do well to apply that to ourselves, do we not? You know that same option was presented to the Israelites who heard this story? Just as they were about to cross into Jordan, the land of Can cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. That's the option. And that same option is before us as well. Now, how? Now, the Lord here tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. You must rule over it. He's saying that, that sin is ready to pounce, but it does not have to rule you. You must rule over it. You have to decide against it. And so here is where some care is needed with the scriptures. So is the answer simply try harder? Is that the answer for us when temptation is near? Just try harder. I don't know about you, but that message has never worked for me. Try harder. Just, I know, do better next time. Well, back in chapter 1, God blessed the man and told him he was to subdue the earth, to rule over the earth. Now, the way God had made the earth the earth would delightedly yield its produce. God was with the man and the woman there. God said, rule. God's right there. He made the whole deal, right? They were to rule while resting in what God had given. That's how they were to do it. Now, when Adam and Eve heard the serpent's lie, they didn't exercise that dominion and rule over that serpent, did they? You see, they were in the garden. The Lord was there. The responsibility to rule was never to be exercised independently of the Lord. So here, in chapter 4, the Lord is telling Cain, make a choice, rule over sin. But I would submit that, that the Lord did not expect Cain to exercise that authority independently of the Lord. And neither does the Lord expect us to master sin independently. If we had to do it on our own, that would only lead to despair. And I think many of us know this morning, if you've tried to rule over sin in your own life and in your own power, you find yourself despairing. Oh, you may succeed for a little while, but if you're doing it in your own strength, something's going to come along that's going to knock you down. Now, the key to ruling over sin is resting in the Lord. And that's the application for us. To do well, to be accepted by the Lord, we rest in Him. Or as Jesus says, abide. Let me read that from John 15. And before I do that, my young adulthood was, was one of despairing because I felt in my own, I felt I just simply couldn't measure up to the Lord. Trying, failing, trying, failing. 
And when the reality of what I'm going to read to you hit me, it was like a weight was taken off my shoulders. Jesus says this in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing apart from Christ. Bearing fruit is doing well. Doing well is being accepted. Being accepted is being at rest with the Lord. Being at rest with the Lord is a state of abiding in Christ. It is submitting to God. And when you live there, when you live there, the serpent can't win. He will tuck tail and slither away. He is all tail. <laughs> James says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Just park there. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Rest in Him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden in Eden because of their sin. They thought they could be independent of the Lord. Cain followed in his parents' footsteps and turned away from the very rest he was offered. And you and I, we are born into this world toiling, toiling. But Jesus comes to us and bids us come to Eden. Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world makes much of independence. Being your own man. I'm sure most, well, some of us, maybe older people here are familiar with Sinatra's song. It seems like an, an anthem for his life. But it's such a lie. But listen to this. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Now that sounds like, oh, it's a triumph. But my way is the way to toil. My way is the way to death. And I don't know where Frank Sinatra is today, but if you truly believe this, it's not going well for him. Now the way, <laughs> the way for us, the way for us to be accepted is what God offers us. 
And there is hope for all of us in Christ. It means that you have the assurance of rescue from your toil. And the means to the rescue from that toil is same as what leads you to live continually in God's rest in Eden. So as we think about this, as we apply this, as we trust the Spirit to, to plant this on our hearts, I, wanna, I want you to think of these three words in reverse order through the lens of Ephesians chapter 6. In reverse order, rest, beware, believe. Ephesians chapter 6. We must rest. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We must beware. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beware! And we must believe. Verse 16 of Ephesians 6, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Believe. Believe, beware, and rest. Don't be like Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you believe, you are aware and you rest in the Lord, you are accepted. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your word to us. And we pray that we would take this, um, this instruction, in particular, to not doubt your word, to not think that we have a better way, and Lord, to, to have our eyes and ears tuned to the things that could trip us up, to beware. And Father, finally, just simply rest in what you have already accomplished for us. Inasmuch as we abide in Christ, who was crucified on our behalf, who, whose death on the cross took away the power of sin over us, Father, teach us increasingly, moment by moment, to rest in him. As we await his glorious appearing, the end of time and all glory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.